I'm glad you're here this morning. I was uh, talking to Cecilia before, before I came over to the church early this morning, and I felt a little bit of sadness that we're almost to the end of the book of Hebrews. This has been a, a good journey for us, I, I think. I hope it's been meaningful to you, enriching for you. I hope more than anything it's, is that it has, it has enlarged your vision of Christ, that you understand even more deeply and appreciate more completely who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, and these big themes that we've been developing, that Jesus is worth it, whatever the cost, whatever the alternative, which there are none that compare, Jesus is worth it, whatever that may require of us, and that we should never quit, we should hold on because the reward is great. We're living and longing for that city whose true foundations is God. And so I hope this has been really challenging and encouraging and helpful to you, just building up that sense of the greatness of Christ. This final chapter, chapter 13, as I mentioned last week, is a bit of an epilogue. So we hit these huge themes, these deep theological doctrinal themes. And the epilogue gives us some implications of this. With the idea of how do we persevere, how do we endure, how do we endure together in love, how do we do this as a people, not just as individuals, how do we maintain our faith and faithfulness to Christ till the end? And so with that in mind, we sort of shift into this final theme of healthy churches, healthy leaders, healthy people led by healthy people, and how that works together for God's glory and our good, how that is God's means by which, one of God's means by which he perseveres us and keeps us. And so that's our theme this morning, healthy churches and healthy leaders from Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 7. So follow along with me. If you've got your Bible there with you, you can. You're going to want to reference back to it because I'm going to hit some of those verses. I'm going to go back to them, and you can also read on the screen behind me. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray about that text this morning, that God would embed it in our hearts and minds today. Father, I pray that as we look at your word today, that we would hear your voice in it, and that your Holy Spirit would use it like a very sharp, very fine tool to diagnose and to heal us, to operate on us at the deepest parts Father, I pray that the result of spending time with you this morning would be more than just the emotional sense that we've been in your presence, so I pray we would have that, a sense of your real presence with us today. But Father, it would be a sense of your pleasure, a pleasure in us as we worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we, as we think on you. Lord, as we honor the gift of our Savior, Jesus, through communion, but Lord, as we look at your word today, I pray that it would speak to us in some very specific ways, some very practical life-giving ways, some, some life-sustaining ways, and that, Father, we would do it. We would go out of here and do this, do this word, 
And so, Lord, be glorified in how we hear and how we respond and how we obey. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this message today is really pretty functional, okay? It's basic stuff. It's practical stuff. And I would encourage you today, particularly if you're not prone to taking notes, to maybe write a few things down so these things don't slip away uh, once you're finished. But I want to I give you some imperatives from this passage for Christians in the local church. So that's majority of us sitting in this room today, believers in Christ already. What's the church for? What's this church gathering for? What should I be doing with, with this, with this time, this hour of worship, hour and a half of worship, whatever it may be? What are some imperatives? So let me just break these down sort of as a list for you. Let's start with this one. He starts with this statement. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to the word of God. The idea of remembering here is not just thinking fondly about, hey, I remember that guy. He told great stories. I remember that guy. I really liked him. Or I remember that person. They, they baptized my children. The idea of remembering them is responding to them, and the primary focus of gospel ministry when it comes to an elder, and that's this, is preaching the word. The most important ministry that I can do for your sake and for God's glory is to preach the word. That, that's critical. It's not the only thing that God calls people like me to do or elders who teach to do, but it is the most important thing to do. And, you know, it's a shame that over the years we sort of bifurcated these ministry responsibilities. Um, you have people that you think of as, well, they're pastoral types because they're shepherding, caring, chaplain types. And then there's a preacher, evangelist, teaching types. Well, the Bible weds those things together. My pastoral ministry for the care of your soul, for the development of your spiritual life, for the sake of the gospel is to preach to you the Word of God. The Word of God is primary, and so that's clear in the text. And when the Apostle Paul was training up, when he was personally discipling another pastor like himself, a young man named Timothy, he made it clear to him that this is fundamental to you. Preach the Word all the time. In season, out of season, this is it. Always preaching the Word. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the Word of God. Let me give you some pointers this morning, okay? I'm going to give you some practical helps on how you can do this best. Some practical things that you can do to best respond when someone is preaching to you the Word. Okay, you ready for this? This is, this is uh, Sermon Listening 101, okay? All right? Pray and expect God to speak to you. Pray and expect God to speak to you. Um, I hope, and I challenge you, if you um, don't do this as part of your normal routine already, before you ever gather with us on Sunday morning, that you're already praying, God, speak to me today. I need to hear from you today. I want to meet with you today. Pray and then expect that God is going to speak. And here are some things that I would encourage you to do, both for my sake and for your sake. As you're praying, pray for me. Uh, pray that what I say will be clear. Pray that what I say will be accurate. Uh, pray that what I say will be what God wants me to say to you from this text. So pray for me. Pray for whoever the speaker may be that day. It won't always be me. Maybe one of the other elders or pastors here. And then, of course, pray for yourself. Pray that you would have the ears to hear what God is saying to you. Pray against that natural inclination that all of us have to some degree to reject things that are hard for us to hear, things that are convicting for us, things that make us feel guilty. Uh, pray that we'd be able to hear what God is saying to us. And also, here's a, here's a huge one, one huge word that will totally change the way that you hear any message, and that's this. Pray prayers of confession before the sermon, because there's nothing that clouds our hearing more than unconfessed sin. 
Unconfessed sin in our life is a barrier in so many ways, and one of the ways is not being able to hear clearly or respond rightly to the word. So pray and expect, okay? Number two, be rested and ready, okay? Be rested and ready. You know, it's funny to me all the times I'll hear like parents talk about things they can't do, like you know, Sunday night activities. Well, I can't do that. You know, it's a school night. I got to get the kids home and I got to get them rested up. We got to have them ready for, have to have them ready for Monday morning. And I hear people talking about that with their jobs too. No, I can't do that tonight. You know, I, you know I've got to get up early in the morning. I got to get to work. You know, I, I, I've got to, you know, I got to be ready. I can't be, I can't be tired. How often do we think of that on Saturday nights before Sunday morning worship? And this is just simple uh, human physiology, I guess, not psychology or spirituality. But when I'm tired, physically tired, um, when I've run to my limit the night before, I'm in no condition to hear well what God's saying to me the next morning. How important is it to you in the economy of your weekend to hear from God? Will you be rested up and ready? Um, here's some things you can do. One, you know, go to bed at a decent hour, for goodness sake. Uh, this is going to step on some of your toes, and I don't mean it to because I'm saying it blanket, okay? This is, this is not a sniper fire, okay? This is a, this is a bomber flying over you at 35,000 feet, okay? When you fall asleep during the sermon, I see you. <laughs> okay? I see you. Now, I am gracious enough to grant that it's not always your fault. Sometimes I'm boring, okay? I get it. Some of that falls on me. My primary responsibility, however, is not to entertain you per se, okay? Get some rest. But here's something else that you can do that'll help prepare you to be rested and ready for Sunday morning. Read the text ahead of time that I'm going to be preaching on. You say, well, how will I know that? It's one of the reasons why we preach through whole books of the Bible verse by verse. You may not know exactly where I'm going to finish, but you at least know where I'm going to start, Okay, and so where we were last week, pick it up and start reading. Be ahead of us. Be reading, thinking about those texts already so you're ready to respond to them. Okay, number three, ask some good questions when you're listening. Maybe this is just in your mind, not something on paper or something, and certainly not to your neighbor because that would be distracting to all of us. But here's a great question you should ask. I ask the same question of myself and ask it when anyone else is speaking. Where did you get that from? You ever ask yourself that? You're looking at the text, where did you get that from? One of the things that we're committed to, whether it's me or whether it's any of our staff that's preaching or any of our elders that's preaching, is we're going to preach expository messages. When we say expository, we're going to be preaching messages that expose the text, the meaning of the text. Now, for me, the opposite of that would be what might be called an impositional message. Impositional message is where someone imposes their own ideas or thoughts or meanings onto the text. Those are the sort of sermons where you're listening and saying, I don't see that. Where is that in the text? Be asking yourself that. Does the text teach this? Number four, I'm, I'm big into this. I would encourage you to take some notes. And if not during the message, then at least after. When the whole thing is finished and you're sitting there thinking or responding, write down some things that God spoke to you through the text, some things that you think God wants you to do. Put some of those things in writing because if not, and this is just human limitation, this is reality, they're going to slip away from you. Now, I know sometimes I'm going too, too quickly and not always do the slides match up with what I'm saying or can even the guys in the back keep up. But if God is saying something to you and it's worth remembering, write it down. Write down the side you're going to act on that. So take some good notes. Number five, this is so important. And if you're watching online this morning, I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that you're watching. But I hope that you'll be here with us 
to do this together. Because here's something powerful that happens when you and I sit and listen to a message and we listen to it together. I heard it, and you know I heard it, and I know you heard it, and now I'm expecting you to do it, and I'm allowing you to hold me accountable to do it. That's part of what a church does. That's how a church actually fulfills Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. We are stirring one another up to godly living together. I heard the message. I know you heard it. I expect you to do it. You can expect me to do it. There's accountability. There's growth. There's discipleship. And lastly, I would say this, number six, when it comes to the Word on Sunday mornings, the most important thing that you can do to respond rightly to those who speak to you, who speak to you the Word of God, is this. Do what it says. Do what it says. You'll hear me say this often, and so I'll say it again. Our primary purpose, my primary purpose in giving you a message, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night or some special occasion, is not simply to educate you, not simply to inform you, I'm not simply so you have a better understanding of a book or a text, an ancient text. It's for obedience so that we would come under the authority of God through his word, surrender to it, and do it. And so that's most important. So there, that's, one, that's a sub-sermon inside a sermon, okay? So you get that one for free. All right, so first of all, do that. Remember your leaders. Respond to the preaching of the word. Number two, examine, and if they're worthy, imitate the life that's modeled in front of you. Now, obviously, that puts a huge burden on the person that's speaking, as well as it does a person who's hearing. But one of the things that Paul told Timothy as well regarding his life and his preaching was this. He said, guard your life and your doctrine closely, because you can't separate those two. Either one can invalidate the worth of the other. If someone is not doing what they're saying, if they're not living out what the Word says, it doesn't matter their mastery of it and what they teach about it. If someone's doctrine is wrong and misleading, because all, all practice springs out of belief, action springs out of what we believe to be true, then it invalidates the life. Examine that person that's speaking. Examine those leaders that you have, pastors, elders, and as you see the worthiness of their life, imitate them. I, I love the way he phrases this in this text. The author of Hebrews, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. The outcome. Look at the results of someone who chooses to faithfully follow Christ. What are the results? It doesn't mean that it's always going to be happy, happy, joy, joy, fun, fun. People who follow Christ also face difficulty and hardship. Um, You'll hear from our stories as we talk to you. You'll hear from our lives, our struggles, our problems, our difficulties, the things that we have endured, the things that God is taking us through. But part of the purpose of a healthy leader and a healthy church is that we're giving you more than things to believe to be true. We're demonstrating a life that's worth imitating, and I hope that's the case. And again, the burden of that falls greatly on us. Is there consistency? Is there authenticity? Those are the things you're looking for, consistency and authenticity. Um, That's one of the benefits of having someone and having a, a team of folks, elders and pastors that you know well and that have lived among you for a long season of time. Number three, evaluate everything that you hear. When you're sitting there and someone like Don is speaking to you from the scriptures as he did beautifully this morning, or I'm speaking to you, or one of our other, other elders or pastors, evaluate all that is being taught, and this is so critical, okay, and really hear this. Evaluate it not by how it makes you feel, but whether or not it is true. Evaluate it not by how it makes you feel, but, but is this a true statement? 
Again, listen to verse 9 for a moment. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Junk food is a problem for me, particularly at this time of year. And I don't want to sound ungrateful, nor do I want to minimize what you might be doing in the next couple of weeks. But this time of year, people bring lots of good food into the office. Now, truthfully, a lot of it's junk food. I like those little Christmas trees, those little Debbie Christmas trees. Those are good. I like homemade stuff and cookies. I don't like fruitcakes, but somebody does, but that's not me. But, you know, this is a problem for me. And this time of year, and, you know, for most of it, this is the same. You've got this stuff around your house and snacks and stuff, and you graze. You walk by and you graze. You graze. I didn't really eat that much, but by the end of the day, you're packing on an extra 2,500, 3,000 calories of grazing junk food. But it's not really to your benefit, right? You know, there's a lot of preaching that's spiritual junk food. I mean, you know, some fun stories, and they're clever, and they're interesting. And, you know, you might laugh a little bit. It might resonate with you a little bit. It may sound like somebody that you know or a story you're familiar with. But does it benefit? Does it benefit those who are devoted to them? You know, it's good for us to be strengthened with grace. Strengthened with foundational truth, things that don't just stir up good feelings in us, but things that are rooted in the revelation of God in Christ and in His Word. Is it true? Um, I, I could point to you just so many examples from history how clever communicators, powerful communicators, even manipulative communicators can use human emotion to create responses, to, to uh, push for certain outcomes, to even dictate behaviors, not based on truth, always evaluating. But to do this, if you're going to evaluate what you're being taught, whether or not it's true, that's going to require something of you, isn't it? I mean, how are you going to know if it's true or not? You're going to need a basis of truth to compare it to, to see if it's true, correct? I mean, you're going to need to know. I was thinking about this video as we were watching this video clip um, from India and I was part of a team here from Calvary that took a short-term mission trip to India, working with our IMB partners there, and, and some of you in the congregation have been also. And it's always interesting to me that, you know, when people go to India, um, how often, you know, American people come back and they talk about, oh, I love Indian food. I love that food. That was, I so enjoy it. I lost 11 pounds there, <laughs> okay? Uh, David was with me. He can tell you. Um, man, that eating there was hard for me, um, I guess I'm kind of a picky eater, but I can remember one meal we had. I've told some of you this story. It's not particularly funny, but it'll help illustrate my point. We went to a house church where we were doing some training for, uh, you know, local Christians. How are you going to reach those people in your own community? Particularly, how are you going to reach Muslim people in your community, which they had some natural trepidation about trying to engage. And anyway, in their hospitality, they fed us a meal. Now, the meal they fed us, the plate they gave me looked like, looked like a hubcap. It was a big metal plate about this big. And they just piled some food on this thing. And it looked to me just like fried rice, which I'm cool with that. And so I started eating this fried rice, but it wasn't exactly fried rice. It's biryani. If you have biryani and you like it, good for you, okay? You can exclude yourself from this illustration. But it has some spices and flavors I don't like. One, I realize this. Indian hot is a whole different kind of hot. (laughs) And cardamom should not be used in cooking. (laughs) And there's lots of it in there. Pods of it, like the size of my little finger. So anyway, I'm trying to eat this the best I can, but basically I've got this big spoon. I'm just spreading it around the plate. But here's a mistake I made. So I'm holding this plate of food. I've eaten maybe three or four bites, and I'm trying to talk to somebody, and the plate's over here like this. Next thing I know, I feel my plate getting heavier. 
And then sweet lady had put another big plop of this food on there. It's like, gosh, what am I going to do? Well, our missionary Bill was so gracious, and he could see that I was struggling with this. He said, you can give it to me. I'll eat it for you. I said, thanks, Bill. You're the man. <laughs> so I gave Bill my biryani. I thought, pass it. We went back to the same house the next day to do our second part of training. And God forbid, it was the same pot of biryani. We ate it again. And it was even worse the second time. But here's the thing. If you ask me that day, you say, is this good biryani? What am I going to say? I don't know. I've never had this before. I don't know if this is the way it's supposed to taste or not supposed to taste. I don't know if it's good, bad. I don't know if it's gourmet biryani, ghetto biryani. I really have no idea. I don't know biryani. How do you know what a good sermon is? How do you know what good teaching is? If you don't have a basis of truth that you already know, if you don't already have some sense of understanding, I'm not expecting all of us to be scholars and seminary graduates and all those kind of things, but every one of us should be studying to show ourselves approved unto God, all of us. We should be knowing the Word so that when we hear something that's contrary to it, it should resonate immediately with us. We should have those spiritual defenses always growing. Consider the Bereans. You probably have heard of them. Acts chapter 17. They're described in their, their mentality. What did the Bereans do when they heard sermons? They received the Word with all eagerness. That's fantastic. Be excited about it. Be, be hungry for someone to teach you. Like, I can't wait for someone to give me something. Give me some good teaching today. Receive it with eagerness. Then they examined the scriptures daily to see if those things, here the key words, were so. They weren't listening for feelings. They were listening for truth. They were eager to hear it, eager to receive it, but they consistently and ably examined it. And how often did they examine the word? Daily. Always looking at the word. And there's a challenge for a a disciple, be in the Word all the time, and so you're always considering, I want you to receive it eagerly, I want you to examine what you hear carefully, not just from me, but from anybody that you hear. Two huge questions, I think, that are implicit in this text, because I've already challenged you to ask me, where'd you get that from? Well, here's two questions I think are implicit, not explicit in this text. When you're listening to messages, and you're listening to someone who's teaching you, as you listen and respond and obey, Ask this, one, did they get Jesus right? Did they get Jesus right? Are they telling you the truth about Jesus? You see, this little uh, section in the middle of this text, which was probably the hardest to understand when I read it aloud a moment ago, starts in verse 10 like this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest's sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. What's he talking about? Remember, this is Hebrews. And he's comparing and contrasting the Old Covenant with the New. Well, in the Old Covenant, the sacrifice of atonement is a foreshadowing of the final, the great atonement of Christ for us. But in the atonement sacrifice, what the high priest would do is he would offer a sacrifice of a bull for his sins and the sins of his family, and then he would offer a sacrifice of a lamb for the sins of the people. Now, what happened to those sacrifices they were off, uh, as they were offered? After the sacrifice was offered, the carcass, the remains, were taken outside the camp, and they were burned. They were done. They were destroyed. He says, well, what about Jesus? How is, how is Jesus different than that? Well, you've got two systems in place here. You've got an insider system, and you've got an outsider system. You've got a system that only a few people can participate in, and you've got a system now that's open to the world. In the old way of doing things, you make the sacrifice, but how do you benefit from that? We don't eat on that. We don't live off of that. He's making a comparison here. You and I get to live off of Christ. 
He is our daily bread. He is our fuel and sustenance. Christ, who was sacrificed outside the camp, is a picture of his own death, his death on a cross, outside the city, outside the temple, out there where the common folks are, out there where the criminals are, out there where the least of are. And who has access to Christ? Who can dine on Christ? Anyone who comes, everyone who comes. The picture in the text here is just understanding the difference between Jesus, the new covenant, and the old. The challenge for us when you're listening to teaching is, does the teacher get Jesus right? Do they talk about Jesus as he really is? Are they clear about his life, his birth, his life, his, his death, his resurrection, his return? Just as Dan shared and prayed during the, during the uh, offering time. Are we clear on Jesus because those are critical issues? And a second challenge in this text is this. When you're hearing teaching, whether it's me or someone else or even your life group leader, is this person inspiring you, encouraging you, motivating you to live for more than this world? Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we take on the reproach of Christ, as verse 13 says? Why are we willing to suffer in order to follow Jesus? Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. You know, I can't help this, and I've shared this sort of idea with you before, but I can't help when I see a video clip, even an advertisement like that, as it were, for the Lottieman Christmas offering in a place like India. When the gospel is going out in India, it's the same gospel that we're putting forth here. We don't have an American gospel versus an Indian gospel. There's one Savior. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There's no way to the Father except through him. Jesus made that clear. Whatever part of the planet you live on. But you have to understand the implications of following Jesus. The cost of choosing Jesus can be very different depending on where you live on this planet. And I think about those people that our missionary partners are reaching in the center of India, folks like this gentleman, he's calling people to follow Christ who are going to face ridicule, rejection of family, some of them very real persecution, even up to death. When you and I are hearing these words, and I'm saying these words, they're not empty. Jesus is worth it. It's, he's worth it. And that's why we have to be so clear that the gospel that we give here is the same gospel that we give there. We're not telling people as you go to India, say, listen, I know your life is not as successful as you'd like for it to be. But if you follow Jesus, Jesus is going to bless you and your family and your business. I know your health has been poor, but if you follow Jesus, he's going to give you perfect health. He's going to do all these things. He's going to give you all these gifts. But what if he doesn't? What happens when their family abandons them and they can't do business anymore? What happens when they're hated or kicked out of their homes? Uh, well, what happens when now they're on the run in persecution? How does this fit the gospel? Jesus is worth it. We're living for a city that is to come. Here we have no lasting city. What's the implication for that? I hope when you're hearing messages from me or anyone else, you're hearing them from people who are challenging you, live more than just for now. Live more than just for the stuff of today. Live more than just for a satisfying life. Live for the glory of God, live for eternal reward, live for that city that is to come. Because one day, we all will be glad we did. We all will be glad we did. And finally, I saved this part for the last because the text has it for the last. And it may be the most challenging portion of this text, particularly in our modern, modern culture. The scripture is not unclear here. Finally, obey. Or maybe you can use this word which would fit the same meaning, submit to those in authority over you. 
this is a tough issue today. I find precious few people, even people who've grown up in church, spent their lifetime going to evangelical, Protestant churches like ours, who have a good, clear, biblical understanding of authority. We have totally changed our sense of church, our ecclesiology, our doctrine of the church, to match us, to match our times. And church has become, by and large, for a vast majority of people, a purveyor of religious goods and services. And we are the consumers of it. So if the music is to our satisfaction, then we sing. If the message is to our satisfaction, then we listen. If the programs suit us and meet our needs, then we'll send our kids to it. And we'll participate as long as it serves us, as long as we feel it benefits us, it, it, it's valuable to us. But the idea that there's anybody there that has any right to tell me what to do, that can tell me how to live, that's foreign to us. And so we tend to do exactly what the scriptures say. The words in scripture is, we gather for ourselves teachers who say what our itching ears long to hear. In other words, so we'll gather around those people who are saying the things we already agree with, don't challenge us contrary to what we already think is right, affirm us and how we're already living, and we'll build our communities around that, around our preferences. And then Hebrews, which is this grand a text of Scripture, this grand book of the Bible that talks about the greatness of Christ, this great salvation that can't be ignored, this salvation that has to be held on to. Even as He holds us, we hold on Him, and we don't quit because He's worth it. And then it tells us, obey those in authority over you. And we hit this wall right there. You mean there's authority in the church? Absolutely. Absolutely, there's biblical authority. I was reading a little section from a book written uh, about 12 years ago, uh, by a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith. He wrote a book called Souls in Transition. Souls in Transition was, uh, is about the belief systems, religious life of young adults, 25 and younger. What he, what he discovered is that most of them tend to believe in that, that age bracket, so if that includes you or if you're around there, most of them believe is that the choice of their beliefs is what makes them true. Not that truth leads to their choice of beliefs. If I choose to believe this, it becomes true for me. Not this is true, therefore I choose to believe it. You see the difference? The value is what I think, what I feel. He notes how even young adults that go to conservative churches and identify as Christians often refuse to believe Christian prohibitions against things that are really biblically clear, unambiguous. Premarital sex, for instance. Gender. Other biblical norms that conflict with their feeling, their intuition, or their culture. We establish our own truth. But here verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I guess I summarize that, I paraphrase that second part this way. If you make it really hard for us to lovingly lead you, that's not to your advantage. It's not to, to our advantage. That doesn't work that way. So let's talk just for a moment, in a little bit of time I have, about authority and the difference between authority and authoritarianism. There's a fine line between those two. There is God-given authority. Those who never learn authority and its rightful place and their rightful responsibility to it really never learn God. They never learn to be in submission to God, who is the ultimate authority. 
One of the reasons as parents that we teach our children to fall under authority, loving authority, and hopefully exemplify godly authority is so that they can learn to grow up and be under the authority of God, surrender to God. There's a fine line. God-given authority is absolutely necessary for spiritual growth and development. Authoritarianism can be very destructive for people. Um, Maybe a good correlation from church and the role of authority would be to the home. Um, We talk about this sometimes during a marriage, for instance, doing a wedding ceremony, and we look at passages like Ephesians that talks about wives submitting yourself to your husbands. And there tends to be, in people's minds, this sort of out calls always, yeah, but my husband is not loving like Christ, so at what point do I no longer submit? If he does this, then I'll do this, but it's more contractual than recognizing that a healthy home is predicated on a husband who loves like Christ consistently and and a wife who's submissive to the loving leadership of, of, of her husband. And surely the whole thing can collapse if neither one is doing that. If one is unwilling to submit and the other one is authoritarian, not exercising good and godly leadership, then the whole thing crumbles. So it is in the church. There's a fine line. When you abuse it, it goes awry. Abusive husbands destroy families for sure. Well, same thing in the church. There's a difference. You see, at some level, though, here's what I think. I think we all long for and need authority, particularly as Christians. We all long for and need authority. We want some sense of direction. We want some sense of guidance. We we want some means by which we can determine and discern how we ought to live. Um, This gives us security. This gives us stability. This gives us a sense that everything is going to be okay. I'm, I'm going the way I ought to go. This is our natural combat against chaos, disorder. We don't want to live in that. We want to live in, in an orderly sort of way. We want to know how we're supposed to be living, how things ought to be done, how we, how we ought to function together. We naturally long for this. And again, especially as Christians, help me know the way to go. Now, the problem is that pastors and church leaders can be guilty of manipulating that legitimate need with authoritarianism. That can be our nature because we know people are longing to be led. I've had people before um, in a membership class, for instance, when I'm sharing things that we believe and things that we teach as a church. And after going through some of these things, what we believe about this, 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 someone said, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Just give me a list. I said, what do you mean? Well, a list like, like movies and, and music and, and in all, you know, relationships. Give me a list. What am I supposed to do? I thought maybe to the extreme because most people aren't going to do that. Ask me for my personal list. Nor does the Bible function that way, but through Scripture, through the Holy Spirit, God guides our thinking and our understanding. We want to know some sense of direction. But knowing that need is there, it's awfully tempting for someone who's been granted authority to abuse it. And this is what we see just happening in so many places. I've been listening to, as a number of you probably have, Christianity Today is is a very famous podcast series now, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, uh, regarding leadership and the church and abusive leadership and its its effects. And it's, it's, it's troubling to see what's possible. Jesus himself knew that this would be temptation for leaders like like me and other people. Um, That's why he said these words. This is from from Peter's writings. He says, as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and a partaker of the glory to be revealed, I appeal to the elders among you. Listen to what he says. Be shepherds of God's flock that is among you, 
watching over them, not out of compulsion, but because it is God's will, not out of greed, but out of eagerness. Okay? You're doing this not because you have to, but because you want to honor God in it. Not because it's, it's profitable to you, even though lots of ministry, I, I think, and I'm a cynic, is done for profit. But out of eagerness, this is desire, strong desire. And then he says in verse 3, he says, not lording it over, literally not domineering those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. He says, you're not lording it over them like a Gentile, like a pagan. You're not dominating them and domineering them. You're leading them through example. So I'll give you a couple of statements here, and I hope they'll be clear, even though they'll be brief. When we talk about authority at... Calvary and how that's exercised in the church setting. Unlike some places, and even some things that I grew up being taught in, in church and school, we don't believe in what you might call pastoral authority in terms of one person dictating, domineering, directing a crowd of people in terms of their behaviors. I was listening to a sermon clip the other day from a domineering authoritarian pastor who was berating his congregation, particularly young people in it, because they had not come to him asking his permission before they propose to their future spouses. I've never had anybody yet that wasn't related to me uh, ask me for my permission to propose to somebody. I'm not suggesting that you should. Now, I hope you've got some godly people in your life that can help you see, is that person a good person for you? Is that a right fit for you? Is that person follow the Lord? Are you going in the same direction? Those kind of things. But it was this berating, challenging message of, and I almost thought I would show up. I thought, no, that crosses the line into into a little bit of, of slander here, but I won't, or libel, not slander because it's true, but libel. But at Calvary, proper authority, and when I say proper, I mean biblical ecclesial authority, the way God intends it, is shared. It's shared by a plurality of elders. And one of the reasons that is there is so that one person doesn't become authoritarian, so that one person doesn't dictate, so that one person doesn't have that power that's not biblical. There's a plurality. So we can keep each other in check. We can hold each other accountable. We can run things through together. There's a plurality of elders. I serve as an elder with other elders. And in that setting, when elders gather, we are equal elders. The rightful authority that we wield then together as elders, and this is critical. I know this sounds technical, but I want you to grasp this because it's so necessary for us to understand how we do church. The rightful authority that we wield together as elders is the authority of the scriptures. It's not the authority of our office, not the authority of our position. It's not the authority of our shared wisdom, our years of experience, our unique insight, our superiority. It's the shared authority of people reading, understanding, and rightly applying the scriptures together. That's our authority. So keep this in mind, all right? So instead of there being one person who dictates or dominates by personality or uh, by, by force of you know, words or knowledge or whatever, or even office that grants him that, there's a shared leadership whose authority is not derived from themselves or from the office they hold, but derived from the scriptures. That's the authority that we have. Then understand this, the sort of authority that we exert then necessarily is the authority of counsel, not the authority of command. What does that mean? Authority of counsel, not authority of command. Parents have authority of command, right? Parents have authority of command. Parents, when you lose the authority of command, you have lost control of your home. 
If you don't have the ability in your home to say, this we're going to do, this we're not going to do, if you do this, this is going to be the consequence. If you don't do this, this is going to be the consequence. That's the authority of command. You give the rule, you give the expectation, you give the direction, and there are consequences regarding that. Authority of command. Other places have authority of command. The state has the authority of command. You will drive this fast. You will not drive faster than this. If you drive faster than this and then you are pulled over, here's what we're going to do to you as a result of that. I'm not going to pull you over as a highway patrolman and say, listen, I strongly encourage you for the safety of you and those around you to please stop driving 20 miles over, over the speed limit, okay? I know there's nothing, well, hold on, this is, actually is how we're fighting crime today, so I don't want to go there. Um, <laughs> I strongly encourage you not to burn things down, steal things, or kill people. Now, listen, there is an authority there, authority of command, but the church's is an authority of counsel. So consider this. When we direct, when we lead, we're saying, this is what the Word of God says. This is how we believe the Word of God comes to bear on this situation. And even in the most challenging situations like church discipline, whether it's what we have done or what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians, it is always with the challenge to the congregation, we strongly urge you to do what the Bible says here. But ultimately, ultimately you're accountable to that. Now, I was reading this from a book on church life and church authority where he writes, he says, some might hear this sort of idea, this counsel versus command, and say, oh, well, good, that's not real authority. That's not real authority. And so you, you said you have authority, but you really don't if you're just counseling. Oh, but hold up, here's a caveat. It is real authority because this is an authority backed by Jesus. It's an authority backed by Jesus. If elders counsel and you decline, it's not over. That's not the end of the equation. You still have to give an account for yourself at the end. And maybe you'll be right because we're not infallible. We're not infallible, nor do we claim infallibility. You may be right, but you're going to have to give an account to God because what we're counseling, what we're directing, what we're leading in is a conviction that this is what God wants because the scriptures say. And I'll just throw this one in just as an aside real quickly. There's a huge difference, and I hope you perceive this difference. There's a huge difference between someone saying to you, Here's what God's Word plainly teaches. Therefore, we will, or therefore, we encourage you to. And someone standing in front of you and saying, here's what God said to me last night. Do you see the difference in that? I hope, I hope you will never, ever hear from me. Listen, God told me last night to tell you this, if it's not clearly in Scripture. I remember leading a business meeting as a young pastor and we had a humongous decision in front of us. I mean, this is a sort of decision that changes people's fates and futures for, forever and ever. We were trying to pave a parking lot. <laughs> and for me, I thought this is a no-brainer. Um, you know, we're parking people in gravel and dirt, and people are walking through puddles and things like that. I'm getting complaints of women in their, in their heels breaking off. And it's just this is a no-brainer. Um, we're, we're holding up people coming to church because we've got bad parking. Let's do a parking lot. And... Uh, at the time, we didn't have plurality of elders. It was me and, and staff and some deacons. And, and I said, we feel very strongly that what we need to do, what, what God wants us to do, um, so that we can grow, so that people can come in here and that we don't limit the amount of people coming towards it. We pay this parking lot. And I'll never forget this woman raising her hands. The first question we got there in discussion, sitting like two rows in front of me. Yeah, I won't say her name in case she's listening. Probably not. Uh, well, I don't see any burning bushes here. What do you mean? Well, you, you say this is what God wants you to do. God tell you, I don't see any burning bushes around here. And I thought, well, you know, just 
one, it, it made me careful to, I'm not going to say God said to me in a vision and dream, pave a parking lot, because he didn't. I was trying to make the best decision with all the factors that we had and, and a multitude of counselors with that. But I want you to be careful too, because too often we manipulate and we abuse the authority by saying, God told me. And you'll be tempted, some of you sometimes will be tempted to say, well, maybe, maybe he really does hear things from God I don't. Maybe he does have some sort of special connection I don't have. Maybe God really does speak to him in a way he doesn't speak to me. I mean, he is a pastor after all. You know, I've only been a Christian three years. He was born a pastor. It doesn't work that way, by the way. But God's word, counsel, not command. How does that work out practically for us? It works out like this. In the mechanism of elders in a church life like ours, we will recommend things, and then many of the most important things you'll have to vote on, right? The church always has the right and the authority to reject our recommendations and even to reject us, to remove us. But again, you need to be ready to give an account. And you need to have an attitude of trust, not skepticism towards us, because we're the ones that you have chosen. We're the ones whose lives that you know. We're the ones who are living in front of you. We're the ones who are teaching plainly and openly, not hidden. So the final exercise of authority in the local church, then, is not individual, and it's not even elder. It is ultimately, for us, congregational. It's congregational, and we believe that's biblical. Um, what we implement here, we would call elder-led congregationalism. That means our final authority is you. You hold us to account, the elders. I love this little syllogism from a book called Don't Fire Your Church Members. The case for congregationalism, I'll share it with you very quickly, then I'm going to close. Think of it like this, as I've explained. The church's life, its effectiveness for the kingdom, all of that is wholly dependent upon members submitting to God's word. That makes sense, right? If we're going to be effective, we've got to submit to God's word, do what it says. Number two, the elders possess the authority and hopefully the ability of correctly communicating God's word, applying it to every situation, teaching it and applying the word. Therefore... All of us, the congregation, will find our best satisfaction and our best success, our best enjoyment, our best fulfillment as we submit to the elders' teachings and applications of the Word. And so that's how all this works. Why? Because the final ruler of the church is Christ. It's Christ. It is to Him that we must give an account. So we lead in a way that acknowledges that account that we must give. Again, from Lehman's book, and I leave you with this as a challenge I read this and I thought, wow, if every one of us who was a member of this church or who was about to become a member of this church thought of it in these terms, and we thought of each other like this, what a profound difference it would make. Jonathan Lehman, an elder formerly at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, said when we're representing or presenting someone to the congregation for membership, I'll usually say something like this, something like the following. So I'm quoting him. Friend, by joining this church, you'll become jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues to faithfully proclaim the gospel. That means you will become jointly responsible both for what this church teaches as well, well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. And one day you'll stand before God and you'll give an account for how you use this authority. Will you sit back and stay anonymous, doing a little more than passively showing up for 75 minutes on Sundays? Or will you jump in with the hard and rewarding work of studying the gospel, building relationships, and making disciples? We need more hands for the harvest, so we hope you will join us in that work. That's a healthy church with healthy leaders. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you would make this so for us, increasingly so, not as an end, uh, but as a journey as we 
as we labor to be, be faithful to our King Jesus, to submit to His authority and the authority of the Word given and the Spirit of Christ in us. Father, may we be faithful. May we be submissive. May we be obedient. Father, we want to be a healthy church, effective at your purposes. Today we've talked about a myriad of things, why we gather and what we do when we gather. We've talked about missions and the need of the gospel to go to the nations. Father, from this healthy church, I pray, would spring missions and missionaries. I pray would spring generosity and hospitality. I pray would spring witness and authenticity as we are your ambassadors in this community and way beyond that you make your appeal through us. That's what your word says. So I pray you'd make these things so. And Father, if there should be one today that you're pulling on their heart, changing the way that they think and drawing them to yourself, I pray they would understand that following Jesus is worth it. And they're not doing it by themselves. They're called to be part of your family. They're called to be part of this body, a body called the church, the bride of Christ. And that together, we'll encourage one another. We'll, we'll help build each other up. We'll sometimes necessarily correct one another, challenge one another. We'll reach down and lift each other when we failed. Um, we will be family to one another. And Father, even as they're drawn to you, I pray they be drawn to, to what you offer them in Christ, a new life, sins forgiven, freedom from the old habits and addictions, and Lord, this, this new creation that you make us. And Lord, I pray that as they embrace that, they recognize that you've saved them to be part of something, to be part of your family, your flock, the body of Christ, his bride. And Lord, for those of us in this room who are Christians already, members of this church already, Father, may our sense of church and our responsibility to it be ever sharpening, ever refining. Lord, may our leaders be healthy and lead in healthy ways, speaking the truth, living out the word, loving the people. And Lord, may we be a people that works together rightly as a church. So Lord, be glorified here. Be glorified as we represent you. Pray in Jesus' name.